Welcome back to the Upper Left Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Anderson, and this is season two of the show. Obviously, as you notice, went on a hiatus back in September. Kind of an unplanned one. It was just work was getting busy and, uh, and, and getting guests was becoming a bit of a chore. So I decided to re-rack the show, take a quick break, and reload for 2021. And now that we are here, uh, we are back. And it is very exciting to be back. This is obviously something that I've really enjoyed doing over the past about year now. And I'm excited to bring you some more guests I'm looking for a few ways to expand the show beyond strength and conditioning. As I'm sure you noticed the last few episodes of the pod, I had some non-strength and conditioning related guests on the show, and I'm just very interested in ways that people are mastering their craft and are super passionate about things they're involved in. And so I'm going to kind of expand it to that a little bit and see if we can get some uh, some more global perspectives to just being successful in whatever career you're pursuing or whatever passion you're diving into. So you'll see some non-strength and conditioning related guests here in season two for sure, uh, but we are going to lead things off uh, with a strength and conditioning coach this year, and that coach is Alex Bassetti. Alex is uh, currently an assistant strength and conditioning coach at Northeastern University where he's working under Dan Sanzo. And of course, he previously uh, worked with Michelle Boland, who's a previous guest on the show. Um, and we t- today decided to talk about shapes. And uh, we did this in season one as well with Eric Huddleston. We brought him on the show from iFast and talked about different shapes and how they affect pelvic movement. Um, and today we decided to take a, a step further and look at uh, the sh- shapes in terms of uh, people who have large or small thoracic outlets and then large or small pelvic outlets and how those the, the different changes we see in terms of how large those outlets, respective outlets are, how they affect uh, our ability to produce power. And so that's what we dive into today. Um, very deep, I might add. And Alex is able to share a lot of anecdotal information uh, that he's had in experiencing uh, Uh, programming for his teams at Northeastern University and so it was a really fun conversation and one I think you'll enjoy quite a bit. Um, Alex is in addition to being an assistant strength conditioning coach at Northeastern University he's also worked as an intern at Harvard University, Boston University, St. Anselm College where he got his undergraduate degree in communications and then of course was also a strength and conditioning uh, fellow at Merrimack College uh, where he got his master's degree in strength and conditioning. So Alex has had a great start to his career. It was really exciting to talk to him about these concepts. And if you check out his Instagram, uh, which I'll link in the show notes, make sure you check that out so you can see kind of some of the things he's talking about here and get a nice visual for our discussion today. If you have any ideas about guests to bring on or uh, routes the show could take, or if you're interested in being a guest yourself, just hit me up on my Instagram at Jack and Jack underscore Anderson, I, 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 and we can, uh, talk a little shop and see if you'd be a good fit for the show. Uh, really excited to bring the podcast back. This is a great first episode. Hope you all enjoy it and looking forward to many more here in 2021. Alex, how you doing, man? Thank you so much for, uh, for hopping on the show. I know we've had a couple of great discussions about, um, shapes and pressures, fluids, all the kind of things in the Bill Hartman world of training these days. Um, and I also had Eric Huddleston on earlier, I think like, well, at this point it was like May, it's a while ago now. And, um, we talked about similar stuff, but I wanted, I feel like you've done a very good job, um, on social media and then in our discussions talking about different shapes that you see in people and then the training considerations that we need to take uh, into account based on what we're seeing with people in shapes. Um, 
but before we dive into that, I just want to get a little bit of your background, where you're from, uh, kind of what your, your history is in the uh, field of strength and conditioning, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you for having me on. Big fan of the podcast. Uh, I've you. On for years. Um, some, good, some good stuff you get, you get on with uh, all the guests that you get. Um, as far as my history goes, I'm from Foxborough, Mass., um, but like eight minutes away from Gillette Stadium, so big Pats fan. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> um, not looking too good this year. <laughs> this might be the end of it all, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's the beginning of the end. Um, but yeah, uh, like most coaches, I kind of grew up like very active, loving sports, um, like a three-sport athlete in high school. Uh, I ended up playing lacrosse in college at a small D2 school called um, St. Anselm up in New Hampshire. And that was the first time I was introduced to like what a strength coach is. Uh, we got one like our sophomore year and I was like, oh shit, that's a job. Um, but yeah, so then like since then I've just been, that's when I got started training in the off season and another facility. I interned there. I interned at St. A's under my coach, um, got really into it, decided, you know, I was a communication major. I was like, ah, screw that. And went to grad school for, for exercise science. Um, while I was in grad school, that's where I started to get like most of my exposure and my experience. Like I, I did an internship with BU. Um, then I did one with Harvard that summer after I graduated. Uh, and after Harvard, they're the ones who put me in touch with um, people at Northeastern. That's where I currently work. Um, so I've been, I got hired there part-time fall of 2018. So going into my third year and I mean, I was full-time last year. So second year, full-time third year there. And early on, my experiences were pretty traditional, right? Um, a lot of what you're reading, like kind of like the NSCA textbooks, um, a lot of like the general kind of strength training ideas that are out there you know, squat, hinge, push, pull, carry, and you'll be okay. And like do like all different kinds of conditioning, get some aerobic, some anaerobic, some sprinting. Um, but it was at Northeastern where I really started to be exposed to a different way of thinking and kind of like seeing things through different lenses. Um, that's what kind of led me down the path of kind of like the Bill Hartman-esque ideas, um, those different shape ideas that I've been posting about on my Instagram um and it really yeah like really like people always say like they're as they develop their their programming the, the way they coach changes like the way i coach and program now is like completely different from two years ago even a year ago right um and it's because i i view things again through like these skeletal shapes right um so we're pretty much we're pretty much like a bag of fluid, essentially, with some guts made up inside of us, right? This is what a lot of people don't realize is those guts in our abdominal viscera don't have any attachments to the axial skeleton. Um, so when we move, essentially, those guts move with us, right? And there's going to be a delayed whiplash type of effect, right? So if I go to cut or jump, right, these guts are coming, slamming, crashing into our pelvic diaphragm as we do that. So these shapes really start to come into play when you take that into consideration. So I kind of break it down 
into like four different um, categories and people are going to fall anywhere kind of in between on the spectrum. These are kind of the extremes. Um, but the main one is uh, kind of one of the main ones is a funnel. Right. And when I'm talking about these skeletal shapes, we're looking at the relationship between the thoracic outlet and the pelvic outlet. Right. So a funnel is someone whose thoracic outlet is wider compared to the pelvic outlet. So it kind of starts wide and comes down and gets really narrow towards the bottom. Right. And these are generally going to be your most gifted athletes. Um, they're going to be really springy, really athletic, really explosive. Um, generally like it looks effortless to them. Right. And this is because their body is not, has this natural gradient that's designed to let them do those things, um, that we see is really athletic. So the, that fluid that those guts inside of us, they have to react to this gradient, right? If you think of fluid dynamics, pressure and fluid is going to go from an area of low pressure to an or sorry, an area of high pressure to an area of low pressure, right? So that area of high pressure for the funnels is the bottom of their pelvic outlet, right? So as they load up for a counter movement jump or they load into a cut and try and get out of a cut or out of a jump, those, that fluid goes down and it gets out of there really well, really efficiently, right? So they're able to push up their guts and fluid and send it back up almost effortlessly, right? So they produce force really well and really fast. These people, they're gonna, they're gonna respond very well to general strength training, right? So that's why, that's why like, it's become so popular, like things like just traditional squats, um deadlifts bench presses right because all that pressure that gets pushed down just comes up really well really efficiently yeah no so that's interesting you're talking about that because i think about the history of strength and conditioning in and you in the u.s team sports and i mean a lot of it was you know we show these videos all the time in the nebraska corn huskers you know all that stuff they had a bunch of guys that were that shape doing that thing so it makes a ton of sense that we've kind of continued on a path like this is what works. But of course, as you're going to explain in a moment, there are other shapes that maybe this isn't the best way to go about things. Right. Exactly. And like that, like you said, that's why it became so popular. And that's why like we can't take this broad, um, broad brush, like stroke approach to training to, to like all these different athletes, right. It's like N equals one. So if you get someone who's more of like a funnel shaped and again, they're going to be, more narrow towards the top of their thoracic outlet, they're gonna get wider as they go down to the base of their pelvic outlet, right? They are not gonna respond the same way as a funnel to these same, same methods that we're using of like traditional strength training, right? If we put a bar on top of them and we load them up with weight, we are literally burying them more by like adding more gravity to them, right? So their internal gradient, it's going to, again, it's going from an area of high pressure to an area of low pressure. So that area of low pressure is down toward the base of their pelvic outlet, right? So they're already having all that fluid, all their guts being pushed down and their um, pelvic diaphragm can't push it up very well, right? So when we add more weight, we are amplifying the things that they're bad at, right? So we're pushing them down more. They, they already can't lift their pelvic diaphragm. So something that I found has been helping these pylon shaped athletes is using band assisted work. They need to unload to learn how to 
push up with their pelvic diaphragm to send these guts and fluids back up, right? So they're already losing the gravity just with their own body weight. So when we unload them, we're, again, we're, we're teaching them to, to become more efficient, more powerful with this internal piston that's the pelvic diaphragm and the diaphragm. Yeah, I don't know where I was going. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, that's fine. So, so those are like the two basic shapes. And then there is one, one more shape that you use, which is the tube, right? And then there can be, I guess, thicker or skinnier tubes. Yeah, exactly. Right. And a tube, again, they're not going to be as athletic or as powerful as, say, uh, like a wider or narrow funnel. And they're not going to be as, let's say, stuck in the mud as um, a pylon. They're going to be somewhere in between. And they're probably going to be, you're more like, like we'll say, like fit people and, or like aerobically fit people because they're going to be really efficient at pushing that fluid up and down. Like they could do that all day long. They can sustain activity, right? Um, it's just not going to be that powerful, right? So like a narrow tube may have a little bit of spring to them, but again, it's not, it's not going to be anywhere near the level of a funnel, right? And that's why it's, it's really tough to, to compare these people, right? Coaches, sport coaches all the time are like, well, why isn't he like him? Right. And it's like, well, look at the shapes they're not they're not the same right so we like we can't expect a pylon or a tube to have the same output or the same speed or the same explosiveness as a funnel but like that's sometimes that's the expectation of sports coaches and it's like well why can't you why can't you get them faster or this worked for uh let's say that funnel right this worked for them they became faster so it should work for them but again we can't take this one size fits all approach to training Right. There's going to be different things that work well for each one of these shapes. Right. And that's why we, we, we just can't we can't assume um, that like one exercise or one method is going to be like the solution for everyone. Well, it's interesting, too. You kind of put like on certain ones that had a um, like some of the pylons or some of the, you know, some of the pylons, for example, like some might still be narrow at the top and then wide not at the bottom, but it's different levels. We can almost think of it on a, as on a continuum, correct? Like exactly. Yeah. Like some people might not be quite as wide below. And so it looks, doesn't quite look exactly how you're describing. And I think you mentioned this at the beginning, like we need to look at these funnels and say, which one are they closest to where? And I, I guess the easiest question is where is the area of high pressure and where is the area of low pressure? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, like you said, they're going to fall on this continuum. So it's like, it's almost like a question of how much, like how much of this strategy do I need to give them? Like how much do I need to unload this pylon? Maybe they're not that much of a pylon. Maybe it's just by a little bit, right? The, the pelvic base or the pelvic outlet is a, a little bit wider than um, the thoracic outlet. So maybe they just need like a really thin band to use them in a band assisted squat. And then like we give that to them for let's say like three, four weeks. All right, now they're moving a little better. Okay, overload, right? Was it what we want? Great, keep doing that, keep progressing it. It wasn't what we want. Okay, now we can adjust and tinker a little bit. No, I completely agree with that, man. I think um, the other question I was gonna ask you about this, it's a little bit of a tangent, but I don't know how much you've seen anything with like moxie monitors and stuff like that. And some people are more predisposed to utilizing oxygen and entering 
um, positions that will enhance hypertrophy, for example, because they're very good at like occluding blood flow um, and, or, and, and essentially like putting the tissue in a position to experience a lot of metabolic damage to stimulate muscle growth, right? And I was wondering, it kind of makes it interesting. I wonder if some of these like these easy gainer guys, I wonder like what shapes they might fit in, where they might line up. I don't, they could be completely different things that aren't related, but it does make you wonder like some of these more athletic guys that are going to be funnels, for example, I see them being, you know, football players that can easily put on mass because we can use these strategies and they work very well for them from both a force production and a muscle growth standpoint. Um, mm -hmm. And I just wonder how much you think that might tie in if you've ever thought about that at all. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. I think like all of, the, all of those different kind of shapes that we just talked about, and it all depends on how much compensatory action is happening, right? So when we think about the position of the axial skeleton, so like of the rib cage and the pelvis, right? Those are going to change based on the, the athlete's ability to produce force and the force production demands being placed on them, right? So if they don't have the force production demands being placed on them, especially a pylon, right? They're already losing the gravity. Now we're asking them to produce more force against gravity. It's a compensatory strategies. Um, we're going to have to rely on these... Um, these muscular strategies, these peripheral muscle strategies. And that's where you get the, the occlusion of uh, the venous and arterial occlusion, um, kind of cutting off oxygen, more acidic, um, lower pH environment. Um, that's putting them in more of like an anaerobic state, right? So I think the wider you are, the more biased you are towards IR anyway, right? So they're going to be very, very prone to um, kind of those like low oxygen environment. Um, and again, the more you have to rely on these compensatory mechanisms, same thing, the more we're gonna like have to occlude um, venous and arterial blood flow. Uh, and we're gonna have to use these, these short-term um, energy system strategies as well. And that's like another thing too, is like a lot of times sport coaches will be like, ah, the guys or the girls, they're out of shape. And it's like, well, like, why, why do you say that? Right. And it's like, they point a lot of times they'll point out the, these wider people or these, especially like a wider pylon. And it's like, well, they really weren't made like genetically made to move or move very well. And you're asking them, let's say it's like a soccer player. You're asking them to, to cover however many sprint yards in a game. So they're using, they're trying to produce as much force at these high speeds over and over again throughout the game, right? When they're like literally losing to gravity, right? So you're just like, again, ask, like asking to produce more and more force and they're using these compensatory strategies. And that's another thing that interests me. I never even thought about it from a shape perspective of someone might not be the right shape to display the qualities a coach is looking for and and you know kind of again hit, hit on that you mentioned the compensatory strategies and i think that is ultimately like you said 
what's driving again, uh, this lack of either oxygen delivery or utilization for those structures as well, as they sit there and try to compensate for the fact that they just can't perform the actions the way the coach wants. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. They don't have that, that efficient internal piston, right. That that's accepting the guts and the fluid, pushing it up, accepting, pushing it up over and over again. And especially when you, you add like a capacity element to it, like that's, that's just pushing them past their threshold threshold of what they're capable of. Right. Maybe some of these athletes have like a couple reps in them where they can do that like fairly well without having to rely on um, these compensatory strategies. It's probably well past that and whatever the demands for their, for their game and their sport are. This is making a ton of sense. I'm just, I'm just coming up with examples now in my head. That's really making me think. So if you've got a cross country runner, we know they're probably going to be like a skinny tube shape, right? So we don't have yep. necessarily any high to low pressure areas. We could just have some free and easy movement through, uh, through the, the fluid and guts are going to freely and easily move however you need them to move in a sense, right? Um, without exactly producing any particularly strong amounts of force or power uh, because of the lack of yep. pressure. So, you know, again, I, I put it up with the, with the Moxie stuff. Like you look at those, those cross country, there's again, not across the board, but I would guarantee you that their rate limiting factors and they have nothing to do with the delivery of oxygen because they're not occluded. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think like another thing is like, when you think of a cross country runner too, it's like, they don't need breaks. Right. So they have this, it's just like constant being pushed forward, pushed forward, pushed forward. Right. Almost to the point where like, they may, they probably have started to lose um, certain uh, movement options, right? Like I, I bet they're probably lacking IR and just watching some of our cross country runners move, uh -huh. they're lock, lacking a lot of IR. Um, so again, that they go back to these um, peripheral muscle strategies to produce that force over and over and over and over and over again. The, the, the thing about them though, is just, it's, it's all sub-maximal, right? So it's, you may not see it as quickly as say like a football or basketball player or soccer player. Um, but again, they're going there because they're lacking movement options. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's great stuff, man. I think that that's pretty awesome. Now let's take it to the training side of things. Um, and we can go one, you mentioned it a little bit, but we can go one by one through each of them. Tell me what, like, we've kind of established what these strengths or weaknesses are. I'm actually very interested in the pylon shape. So let's start there with the pylon shape. And yeah, the reason I'm the most interested is, is like, I, I understand the concept of let's start by unloading in order to teach you how to, you know, utilize uh, what we're doing from, you know, a, a fluid and guts perspective. Mm -hmm. But the traditional strength coach side of me is like, well, do we ever load them? Like, when do we load them? How, cause it's at, at the end of the day, like what is the adaptation we're going to get from unloading and where are we trying to go to is kind of what I'm asking you. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've been experimenting with this this semester actually with, um, with a couple of my teams, but like in particular volleyball, it's a little bit easier to do that just because of the smaller roster and they're actually very, um, detail oriented and in their training, which makes it, they always are. It's a great, sport yeah, make, makes yeah. it a little <laughs> bit more effective for sure. Um, and kind of when I was talking about an experiment where like we give like an, an input and see what the output is, 
right? So I constantly test, retest with them, looking at two things. One, their body weight squat. And two, we have a force plate. So I jump them every session that we have. Um, but I pretty much broke them down into three groups. Um, one was more of the, and again, it's, it's all a continuum. It was more the funnel type of shape. Um, only There's only like one or two that are like true funnels, um, but they're more biased that way. Uh, then I had a pylon group. Again, there's... There's actually surprisingly a decent amount of pylons in, in volleyball, at least that's, on this team. Yeah, I was gonna say I don't know if that's good, but <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, when you think of like the middle blockers, like, yeah, your liberos in the back, yeah, exactly. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. and the ones who don't have to jump, like you said, the DS, the libero. Um, but yeah, and then my last group was could have been either more fu uh, funnel or pylon, but just uh, girls who kind of lacked movement variability in general, they're, they're very um, restricted in their motion. And you can see it, they're, they're compressed either either on one side, like anterior, posterior, or on both sides. Um, and with that funnel group, again, it was the same lift for everyone. So I started off, I kind of bookended it with more like kind of movement variability stuff, right? Then we hit our, our heavy header um, is our main movement of the day. For the funnels, that was pretty traditional it was either like a trap bar or front squat um just trying to build strength like hitting sets of five like nothing crazy there and then we finished off again with um different like yeah, it could have been a split squat like uh pushes pulls again just more bias towards them regaining motion as they do that right so they get a little bit of work capacity like a, a little bit of strength from that especially um like these females, like if they're fairly untrained, you can build a little strength from that. But the main focus is again, regaining motion. Um, for the pylons, again, it's the same exact setup, but for their main movement, on um, one day I have like a trap bar overcoming ISO. Again, just to help teach them to, to be able to push up, learn to overcome. Um, and you don't have to worry, day, since there's no movement going on there, you don't have to worry about the the pylon aspect of their Nate, like their inability to produce force, right? Since it's an ISO. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You're setting, you're setting the, the depth that they're, they're like locked in at, if that makes sense. So that's they beautiful. can't, yeah. you yeah. can't descend or drop anymore. Um, and that's what I like uh, box squats a lot for too. Right. Um, when you do a, a box squat where you like actually sit to the box, uh, you're literally you're using a constraint to to set that depth so they can't descend anymore. They can't yield any further from that point. Um, so again, if you have more of those pylon types or someone who's very eccentrically oriented, uh, box squats can also be really great to, for teaching them to learn how to overcome at that higher depth. And I would imagine like having them in that like 80 to 100 degree range is where we get that IR moment of the femur. And that's kind of what you're looking for there too, right? Yeah, yeah, that IR moment's gonna happen anywhere from like 60 to 120 degrees of hip flexion. Um, that's like around 90, I think it's like 90, give or take like 30 degrees is like where max propulsion or max IR happens. Um, that's where we produce like the most force. Um, but yeah, for, so for those pylons, we had the overcoming ISO and then we were doing band assisted squats to a box. So again, we're setting that constraint the band is unloading them a little bit. And the other thing that the box does too is 
you actually have like viscoelastic properties in your pelvis, right? And also like along with the pelvic diaphragm too. Um, so it's allowing them to take advantage of those viscoelastic properties and be able to use those again, as opposed to the um, peripheral muscle strategies. Um, and the really interesting thing from all of this is literally just about every girl has PR'd on their jump. Really? Yeah. Interesting. And will you ever progress like the band assisted stuff to load for them? Or is it just something you'll stay away from and just stay with like the overcoming isometrics? Again, it's an experiment. It depends. I, I, I think there will be a point where I start to give them like thinner bands, thinner bands. Okay. Okay. Let's try body weight. Um, okay. That looks good. Like I know um, Dan Sanzo, who, who again, he's probably influenced me the most with, um, with like all these ideas. We kind of go back and forth talking about these things in the office all the time. Um, but he was like saying like, maybe we attach a gym aware to them with the band. Okay. Stand up as fast as you can. All right. At that same band tension, you're moving faster now. Okay. Let's make it a thinner band. All right. Thinner band. All right, we're around that same speed that we were at before. Okay. We start moving faster with that thinner band. We're able to shoot up a little bit better. All right. Maybe, maybe that's how we see how we progress. Maybe it's just an eye test thing. Um, but again, that's going to be something I, I keep playing around with in the future. Um, Cause again, and like, this, again, the strength coach side of me too is kind of like, well, like, when can we load them? Right? <laughs> yeah, it's what we're used to, right? It's kind of ingrained in us at this point. Um, but like, if they keep getting better with that, like that's what's helping them more, right? Like, just keep riding that, keep going yeah. with that. We can still progressively overload with them, right? That principle stays the same, but again, progressive overload just may not be like adding adding a lot of weight to the bar, adding more weight to the bar. Um, maybe they can get there, but the, like the starting point, no, they're like, they're down here. They're not ready for that yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's not even necessarily a question of strength, like peripheral, peripheral muscle strength. Cause I'm, I'm sure some of your girls could probably handle that or that size, that, that shape could probably handle certain loads that you would prescribe to them. That would probably be like, you know, somewhat challenging for the average human being. That being said, that's not what it sounds like. That's not what you're after here is peripheral muscle adaptation you're more interested in best utilizing their structure for athletic performance exactly exactly and some of these girls too like i've i've had them for a couple of years i know they can grind out weight i've seen it like i've seen them lift like 1.5 times body weight right and like guess what they weren't jumping very high then <laughs> exactly like, exactly like we learned we learned from failure right like that was kind of like looking back, it's like, oh, I probably was not helping them out there. I was burying them with gravity, right? And those same girls are literally like, dude, it's crazy. Like those same girls who like I could barely, barely like even inch up or like not make a change with on their vertical jump like a year ago are like hitting like way higher PRs than they have in like, a year or two you're gonna you're gonna want to look at some of those underlying metrics on that too it's you're gonna see some very interesting things i think like in terms of like impulses and 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 whatnot as well yeah yeah the, the main and i'm gonna have to dig deeper on this just because i'm not like an expert with force plates we got it i was like a, a year or so ago but I've, I've been trying to learn more 
the four that I've been tracking or like kind of like looking at are jump height, um, average relative propulsive power. So just kind of like relative power in the concentric phase, um, relative net propulsive impulse. So like relative to body weight, um, the impulse concentrically mm -hmm. and modified RSI. Okay. Okay. And pretty much those, those have been seem to be very correlated for the most part. Those are all going up too. For, for most of the girls. And it makes sense too, especially when you think of like the RSI, right? They can dip down, they're not, get, they're not getting down to the bottom of their counter movement and being like, oh shit, I can't get out of this, right? And then get almost getting like stuck in the mud. That's so a very interesting point with the contact time. Like obviously contact time divided by, or flight time divided by contact time is RSI for those that are listening. Mm -hmm. But that's a very interesting point because usually we assume that if the contact time is longer, it means the displacement was longer. And I always usually just kind of associate the two together. But in this case, it might not even be a displacement issue. It might just be a simple, like we got stuck at the fucking bottom of the movement and it was the same yeah. displacement. That's very interesting. Yeah. And a lot of these girls too, especially like these pylons, a lot of times you'll see like that knee valgus, like knees knocking, like um, almost like over-exaggerated. And that's because, again, they have this gradient that's pushing them down, right? So they get down to the bottom. They're like, oh, shit, I got to go back up. And they're like, I, I don't have that, that overcoming ability to push back up. So force production is IR. So they're trying to maximize IR to get up out of the hole. Well, right? that, would, that would make a ton of sense, too. Like you're trying to create pressure. Like I would imagine if, you're try if you – IR the femurs, you're trying to create some pressure at the pelvic outlet to throw everything back up, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That's very interesting. And, I, and that's another thing too. Like if we're and like I don't I don't I think like a degree of knee valgus is okay, right? You see elite performers doing it all the time, but like we also know like that's the mechanism for like serious knee injuries. So like if we like to decrease that a little bit again, just by giving them a little bit of ability to push up. Right. Again, that's like from an injury prevention standpoint, or you can't prevent him, but like injury. <laughs> I feel you. I feel you. Bro. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, no, that's, that's really good, man. So, our, our, uh, my, my only other, only couple concerns with this, then let's just stay on the pylons for now. Um, mm -hmm. Is force, I guess, force production is going up for you in all this, right? At least from what the force plates are telling you. Yeah. And like another really interesting thing too is like, and the, these girls probably can produce force, but again, it's, it's, it gets like, it almost like it gets dissipated, right? Cause they can't push it up. And like one thing I, I, I've been diving in on some of these metrics is like this. So like you look at the leaderboards um, out of like the whole school uh, for certain metrics. And I was looking at breaking RFD. So breaking rate of force developments in the eccentric phase. And it was kind of like a lot of people look at that as like maybe a, a KPI or like a, a characteristic of, of good jumpers. And there were some, there were some people who were like very athletic towards the top of that board. There were also some people who were like textbook pylons very high up on that board. Yes. Especially like that number one was like a textbook pylon literally like trying to cr like crush in the ground as they come crashing down in their counter movement jump. But they, again, they just don't jump high. Or, nothing, or nothing produce. happens going back up. Yeah. And I, I think exactly. that's, a, 
that's a huge flaw with RFD. Like if we're just looking at RFD, cause I think a lot of, this is like that, a common strength coach metric. I was just talking about this the other day with uh, some people at my work. And um, if you just look at RFD by itself, you're like, Oh, it's really high. That's great. He knows how to put the brakes on blah, blah, blah. But like, <laughs> we don't know how high was the jump. Like what happened after he yeah. all this force, you know, like that's kind of a big deal. And um, yeah, there's certainly, I think breaking RFD is a bit over overrated to an extent, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's kind of one of those like, uh, like gross metrics, like peak power or something. At a moment in time, this is what you did. Okay, that's great. Yeah. But aside from like stack, if I had a, a group of like a hundred athletes and I'm just looking at everyone, okay, that gives me an idea where the pecking order is with this particular thing. But it doesn't give me like any other real insights or any more context into the actual movement. Like I still need to know the jump height. I still need to see from like an impulse standpoint, like what happened, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, just an observation I have, but that's very interesting. You point that out because I think those pylons are always going to be probably pretty good at doing like just getting down there because that's where they want to go anyway. And then they don't want to come back up. It's already, <laughs> being pushed, it's already being pushed that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now this is my other big question. I still think we need physiological adaptation from a muscular perspective at the very least for like connective tissue health, for example. So are you addressing that in your program anywhere else? Um, or do you feel like they're getting it just from the overcoming ISOs? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think they're getting it a lot from their sport too, right? They, mm -hmm. They're constantly producing force in their sport, right? If you think of like, so again, force production is IR. They're constantly getting those IR activities in their sport. If we try to maximize in that, that in the weight room, we're just, again, giving them more IR activities. Um, I still I still do address that a little bit. Again, like the, oh, they're getting a little bit of that from the overcoming ISO. Um, like we still do some like loaded activities, like split squats, uh, again, presses, pulls. Um, again, it, that load just it may not be what we're used to seeing, right? Um, sure. it, like, it's not necessarily about like how much weight is there. It's like, again, how are we moving? Like, how are we getting there? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. Um, are you, do you do, other than the overcoming isometrics, do you do any other stuff that would address like, I think for volleyball too, I mean, it's a jumping sport anything that's going to address like tendinopathies or, or anything like that in, in what you're doing? Yeah. So it's actually really interesting to bring that up. Um, I mean, I've, I've listened to Jake Tura talk on, on the ISOs. Um, I've been like implementing those with them at the end of every lift, um, kind of like Spanish squats. I do them a little bit more, not as like butt back, Right, I kind of let the knees drift, but same, same idea, pulling them forward, kind of stress the quad a little bit. Those seem to be helping so far. But I think to go with that, right, the, I don't want to say it's a Band-Aid, but, like, those issues might keep reoccurring if we don't address the mechanism of why they're getting that knee pain. So, for example, there's one girl on the volleyball team who's very athletic, like, definitely a funnel. Um, pretty genetically gifted and she's getting like classic jumpers knee um, tendinopathy right below that, that kneecap and her force plate numbers have been like down all semester um, and you can tell like she looks like she's in pain 
and she came in one day and she's like, my knee's killing me. Like, I, uh, I, I, I don't think I can, I can squat today. I was like, okay. Um, like we'll make some adjustments and you can see she definitely has like, like her tibia is relatively ER to her compared to her femur. So she has that, that torque there that's causing the knee pain. Like I can, I can see why she has knee pain there. Um, and literally all we did was I gave her a five pound power block. I said, reach this, right. Just trying to get her to open up her back a little bit. Uh, I put a foam roll between her knees, right. So it could kind of line up the tibia and the femur. Um, so there's they're not getting that, that torque there. And I had to do a box squat just with that reach there. She did that with seated jumps and she's like, my knee's feeling better. I was like, you feel good enough to jump? She's like, yeah. So she went over on the force plate PR for the semester right there. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, that's yeah. the other thing too. It's like, and that, that was that third group. It's like some, some of these girls are like just very kind of jacked up um, kind of like lacking these movement options and having to use these compensatory strategies. So for them, it's against things like that, like that squat with a reach, other other types of exercise that I'm using. They're just trying to give them motion back. And again, I'm seeing these jumps just shoot up. These these relative power numbers just shoot up from like barely loading them. Yeah. So we, you said that girl was a funnel, right? She was a funnel. Yeah. Okay. So do you find that funnels? And we've talked about this before on the phone. Um, do you think that funnels? tend to do a lot more horizontal displacement of the pelvis as compared to other shapes or no? Like, are they more hingy in nature? Depends. Depends. Um, because there are some, I would say, yeah. I would say, yeah, again, because they're so good at pushing up that the, again, they struggle to, to be able to yield, right? So they can overcome and, and push up really well, but they, again, on the flip side, they struggle to yield and descend that pelvic diaphragm. So again, they're hitting a constraint and that's when you do see that kind of horizontal displacement of the pelvis pushing back. It's got to go somewhere, right? Like exactly. you have to go somewhere to load up. So yeah, something has to give, and this is where it gets tricky because there will be some of these funnels that like trick me a little bit and I'll see like a fairly um, straight up and down, like vertical displacement of the pelvis and like vertical squat. And I'm like, hmm, based on like other things I've seen from you, you shouldn't be able to do that. And it's because they're usually, they're finding a way somewhere else along the chain to be able to do that. Cause like they, they know what I'm looking for by, by this point, they know I'm, I'm trying to see like that stack. Like, can you keep your hips under your head? Um, so like the, the body's a system. If you don't have motion somewhere, you're going to find it somewhere else to like complete whatever task you're doing. Right. So that's, this is when you'll see like some of us will take that wider base with their squat stance, right? Maybe the knees drive out really wide. Um, the feet start to turn out and kind of twist like that. Um, those are all kind of ways where they, they might trick me a little bit. Um, Into thinking so they're not a funnel. What's that? into thinking they're not a funnel no into um thinking that they have more movement options than they actually do. options than they actually do i see i yeah. see um 
So this is another question I had on the topic of like horizontal displacement of the pelvis, for example. So like I work with some kids that are a little bit more, I would say tube-like is probably the, the best way to put it. Um, and I've noticed like a lot of them are pretty, they have good range of motion and can kind of just shoot down in a, in a vertical fashion, just no problem into a squat. Um, mm -hmm. I don't see that as a problem necessarily, but at the same time, like I, I do feel, see there's some value in teaching them how to hinge so that we can, you know, load them up a little bit more and, you know, put on size if we need to and whatnot. Um, sure. And so occasionally I will even squat them in a manner where I'm, I try to take them out of their normal squat movement strategy and have them kind of sit back in their hips a little bit more, go to about 90 <laughs> degrees into a spot where they don't want to be in that relative amount of IR, take a breath down there, rebreathe, and then shoot themselves back up. Yeah. Um, I'm curious if you think that's potentially problematic um, because we're taking them, I'm taking them out kind of out of their usual strategy or something that might be a good intervention to give them something they don't have. Uh, I think that could be beneficial for them. It, it just all depends like how much, like to what degree, like what do they need? How much can you, like, do you need to give them? And then again, like test, retest, like, do they, do they get better? You said these are runners. Uh, no. So it's kind of all over the map. We work with a ton of different athletes here. So, um, so a lot of them just happen to be either, it, I would say, and I've kind of thought of it a little, I know we're kind of, I'm diverting away from the model we're talking about, but a little bit more narrow infrasternal angle people where very good at external rotation, lacking some of that IR, um, and not really able to kind of, um, create tension at all, if that makes sense, like create tension and kind of fight through yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, I think that could be a good thing for them, right? Like we have these like traditional strength training methods for a reason, like they work. Um, it's just about like how much are you giving up and like how far can we push the envelope without giving up too much, right? Um, I know like Bill just had like a really great post on um, like how strong is strong enough. And pretty much he talks about how max velocity is expressed in, uh, in external rotation. Um, you'll see that kind of like in the- Yeah, because the there's an ER moment, an IR moment, and then another ER moment at toe off pretty much. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Right, yeah. so it's at that toe off, that late propulsion or like end range of gait that you see max velocity expressed. The force for max velocity is produced during that internal rotation, that like mid stance, um, that, that those IR activities. Right. So this is where like some people can get carried away with like trying to maximize force production. Cause if we keep maximizing IR, maximizing force production, there's going to be a point and it's going to be different for everyone where we start to take away that end range ER, right. And they can't access those positions. When you do that, you're taking away their, their ceiling for max velocity. Right. So pretty much when we're strength training someone, we want to, maximize IR and force production to whatever degree without taking away that end range ER, if that makes sense. No, that, uh, that totally makes sense. And it's interesting now, cause I'm kind of like formulating all this in my head. Uh, it sounds like you're, you're doing what you're doing now with girls that you, after having done a lot of traditional stuff with them over the past couple of years. And I would imagine like early on in their college careers, you probably had some success with that. Cause I mean, that's something I've kind of consistently seen wherever I've gone. If I get kids with low training age, I mean, again, almost anything will work, but traditional stuff yeah. does seem to work. But after a certain point, like you said, 
I do think weightlifting like robs you of, you know, the qualities that we're looking for. And from an, just a purely athletic basis, like even if you don't want to talk about ERIR and all that other stuff, or you do either way, it's robbing you of what you need, I think, to be truly successful on the, on the court after or field after a certain amount of time or a certain point. Uh, so I think that's very interesting that you bring that up. Um, it's almost now kind of a question to me is like, where would you start? You know, do you, do you start with the traditional stuff and take what you can get from it? Or do you start where you're, you're at right now? Like is, is your intervention that you're doing right now this year, your experiments, is that a late game intervention for really finishing off like the four year development of an athlete, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think it's, and it's, it's really tough to do too, especially the bigger the team, the more teams that you work with, the more athletes that you work with. Like it, people are very highly individual, highly unique. And like I said, the same interventions are not going to work for everyone. Um, but I think you need to kind of, if you can look at the individual, okay. Like how do they move? What, like, what are they lacking in terms of, of motion or movement options? Uh, what type of shape are they? So like, what kind of strategies do, do they use to move? What are they good at? What are they not good at? Um, and like based on those things, come up with an intervention that you think fits best. Like there are some freshmen who come in very restricted in movement. And it's like, if I try to throw like traditional stuff at you, you're probably not going to respond very well. Like, especially the, like I'm, I'm thinking of like, like one or two girls last year where like they are crushed front to back. Like, like her shoulder blades, like, like poking me in the eye, just standing there. And it's like, she can't drop at all. Like at all. Like you're, she's sitting to a high box on these box squats. Cause I need to start chipping away, giving her a little bit of motion. So she actually, like, she's, she's literally getting in her own way when she's trying to, trying to move, trying to produce force, trying to jump. Right. So if I literally like just give her strategies to get out of her own way, give her some motion back, then we can start um, again, going to that progressive overload, working on traditional things. And, and that's like one person, there were other girls that year, like last year who I could start right away on quote unquote, traditional things like hinge them, squat them, stuff like that. And it, again, it just comes down to like, how much do I need to give each person? And like, yeah. if you have like a football team, really hard to do that right and that's sometimes you can see especially like the higher up you go and, and especially in like power five football right it's, it's almost survival of the fittest this is the program adapt or you fall out yeah right? and i do think too like i was thinking about this like there's a need for strength training in football simply because mass must be acquired you know, like we need yeah. some of the physiological adaptations that you can kind of get away with maybe not administering it to some of, you know, the girls in your setting, right? Yes, absolutely. And like you said, like football is its own beast. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We have high speed, high like collisions like that. You got to have some mass and some, some, yeah. some muscle there to be able to, to handle um, those demands. Yeah. But it's, it's definitely, you know, and it's something I think everybody knows, but you know, now that I think you're providing some logical alternatives to the traditional methods. It's something that like is not necessarily needed in volleyball, you know, at least like exactly. women have girls be twigs, but at the same time, like they don't have to be jacked. <laughs> you know? so. No, they need to be able to, to jump, be explosive 
and cover ground like multi-direction very well and be able to like repeat that right they don't, they're not like pushing against an external load or another body right and and th this is like really interesting too because it gets into like sporting demands right and like if we have to some degree especially the higher like the level natural selection is going to occur like in power five football you're going to have majority funnels like unless you're like some quarterbacks can get away with it old linemen you can get like you're probably not going to be a funnel you might be to a degree you might be like a really wide one like a lot of them won't be though um and then like these strategies that i'm talking about like like if you have a pylon that's a lineman, it's not a bad thing to bury him. Like he needs to be able to not move. You know what I mean? So like the more we bury him, the harder it is to move him. Okay, like that's a good thing for them, right? Or like a center in basketball who like he, he, makes, he makes his living in the paint, right? He needs to be able to hold his ground and not be like pushed off the block or like prevent someone from gaining position on him, right? So maybe like... Sometimes like those types of centers, there'll be more of a pylon. That may be a good thing for them. But if they have to get up and down the court and you're expecting them to be able to like cover at the perimeter or, or like move really well, it's like, well, don't be pissed if we're burying him. Yeah. And he can't do that. You yeah. know Today's I mean? NBA, man. There's no place for those centers anymore anyway. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Except Nicole Jokic. Jokic. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's the last of a dying breed. Yeah. yeah. He can shoot. So. <laughs> um uh, but that, no. that's the other thing too like this like the skill component like he can he can sort of play the perimeter just because he's very like technically sound right and that's a whole other thing to consider is the technical side of the game um because you can <laughs> that's the crazy thing like if, even if you were not shape wise built like you said I, I i think that's a great point you made actually about survival of the fittest in almost any sport like there's a natural selection process to this like if I was never going to play basketball. I don't, I'm not shaped like that. You know, I'm, I'm a freaking pylon. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just yeah. the way it is. Like, and, and you know, I was never going to end up playing and playing that. I find that like very interesting. Like if you don't fight like what you're given and you play enough sports, you're going to figure out like what shape best suits you and where you're, you know, maybe supposed to go, you know? Exactly. Uh, People have these natural strengths like, for a reason and they gravitate towards things they're good at. Yeah, like we can bring the weakness up, weaknesses up to a degree, but if we focus solely on their like bringing their weaknesses so, up so much, then I think we start to take away from the things that they're really good at. They're actually good at, yeah. And I, I think you're doing a good job of that um, with the you know especially the, the program you're talking about for your for your pylon girls. Um, uh, do they enjoy it more? What's the what's kind of the the takeaways from them with this stuff? Because I'm sure like if they've been here in Northeastern a couple of years, like it's probably not super traditional, not what they expected. Do they like it? Yeah. So like I said, like that group is very bought in. They're very um, like mindful and thoughtful about what they're doing. Um, just kind of like the conversations I've had with them about like um, – really thinking about like, like the details of what I give them and like, they've seen success with that. So I think that's kind of helped. Um, so they kind of, they, and then like, sometimes it's like, it's like a female thing. Like some girls, not all, they just don't like grinding or like holding heavy weight. So like, they're like, Oh, like I can, I can hold a band. I can do that. Right. Like that's not that bad. Some girls want to, right. And there might be like one or two that are like, Hey, can I, can I start doing like trap bar? And I'm like, Hold your horses, like just wait. 
trust me. Right. So like, there still is some of that. And like, like field hockey is one, like I also work with field hockey. There's more of those girls there where like they may even, may even be pylon shaped, but they just want to grind weight. They like want to like push heavy things um, and like feel like they're working hard. And I'm like, it's sometimes it's tough for me to have those conversations. Sometimes I'd be like, look, I know you like doing that, but like, if these are our goals that may not be in our best interest. Um, so it can't, it depends on like who you're working with their what they've been exposed to in the past. But like, I think once you've been working with them for a while, especially if like, once they start seeing success in what you're doing, kind of helps them buy in a little bit. Um, but it can be a challenge for sure. Will you, um, maybe accommodate like if you thought about accommodating them by like giving them loads and then using band assistance so like maybe even overloading the movement like more than they're capable of doing and then using some band assistance do you think that's like there's any any merit in that or do they end up moving the same kind of loads that you didn't want them to move in the first place there might be some benefits to that because again there's like a, and like this is another thing there's a whole psychological component to this too right? that's I, why that's why i asked this because i mean if you did that i would imagine they'd be pretty gung-ho about it you know yeah <laughs> And it's like, like you said, yeah, they're going to be gung-ho with like, okay, like we're doing safety bar squats. Like, oh, we got this band assistance, but like we're squatting, baby. Right. Um, I don't want to, like, it sounds deceitful. Like it's not really, but like you almost like trick them a little bit with like things like that. Like you get kind of creative with it. Um, and then like, even like, like if you give them like a heavy kettlebell, that may be burying them a little bit, but like if you have them sit to a box, you're getting something from that. Um, so like sometimes it may not be optimal, like physiologically from like these concepts that we're talking about, but there's a whole psychological component where it's like, okay, maybe that's going to be more effective than like what I think is the most beneficial strategy to get them where they want to be, but they fucking hate doing this. It's like, you know what I mean? Exactly. Um, what about tubes? We haven't talked about them too much, but what uh what considerations do you have for them um anything you do differently with them at all um as long as they're not like pylon i'll kind of do more of the like a little bit traditional stuff with them again it's just like seeing how much before they get starts to take away or if they're already like very restricted tubes in terms of like the degrees of freedom maybe it's giving them some of that back um, and then like kind of going after these traditional things and just the way I set, my, set up my lift, like I said before, like kind of that bookend, maybe we can let them get after it with something like, Hey, go, go get after it with like this front squat or, or whatever it is. Um, but like at the beginning, at the end of the lift, we're going to find things to kind of be able to, to give you those degrees of freedom um, that are kind of holding you back a little bit. Can people change their shapes, do you think, at all? I know it's skeletal for the most part, but can they alter kind of some of the properties? So bones are malleable. We can change the form of them. The That relationship, I'm not sure. Maybe a little bit, because when you bench press, you can literally like flatten someone front to back. So maybe, I don't know what that does to the width of that. You might be able to get like a little bit more there. Like if they're like a tube, maybe like a slight more funnel or like maybe a little bit less of a pylon. But you're also, 
the flatter you're making them, the more you're probably taking away those relative motions. Um, so like you're just, robbing uh, them of a lot IR and ER properties, huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, dude, I used to bench press the shit out of myself and I could not rotate very well after a while. Like I played the cross, which you shoot it's like a huge rotational component. <laughs> yeah. like, I, like I, I remember doing a shooting drill one day and my left shoulder, like literally like, I, like, I don't think it popped out, but it like just like died for a sec. And that's cause like, I literally, I have like, I had like zero IR on my left side and I like couldn't rotate. You know what I mean? Where like flat things don't, don't turn very well. So the flatter I make myself with something like a bench press or, or like heavy bilateral, like presses and pulls, um, the harder it's going to be to turn and rotate. And that's the other thing like here too, like for the most part, I don't, I don't really like barbell bench, um, those team sports, because I think turning is a huge component of like multi-directional speed in, in, in their sport. Right. So if I want them to be able to cut, and turn and rotate all over the field. I don't want to make them more flat there. Yeah, I um, for me anyways, when I do prescribe a barbell bench press, I will typically try to do something sideline afterwards with some breathing in order that's to like try to re to regain that expansion. And I'm glad you mentioned that because that's kind of like nice confirmation bias for me going, oh, I'm glad I'm doing this. <laughs> um, what do you think about like dumbbell benching or single arm or reciprocal benching? Anything like all that kind of falls in a different category, correct? Yeah, um, that can be a really great strategy to help teach people how to turn or give them those relative motions in order to turn, right? Like you eye on one side, you are on the other expand on one side, compress on the other. Um, it just all depends on the load, right? As yeah, 100%, load, 100%, then it turns into the same thing, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. As soon as that load becomes past that threshold, whatever that is for that individual, um, it just becomes a compressive activity. Yeah. Right. And you're, you're, you're burying that pump handle or that sternum to not, be, not letting that lift, um, at least on that one side that you're trying to get it to. Um, Assessment wise, are you doing anything to kind of like identify what shapes are you? Is it just all eyeballing? Do you take pictures? Like, what are you doing from an assessment standpoint? Eyeballing for the most part. Okay. And then, and then along with that, right? Like, cause I can be, I can be kind of off on some of them. I think I got a pretty good idea for the most part, but like, if I'm like, Hey, I think this person's a pylon and then they go jump and I'm like a pylon probably wouldn't be able to do that. Then it's like, okay, maybe I, maybe I was wrong a little bit there. What, uh, what's cluing you in to how maybe a pylon wouldn't do that? Like, what are, what are you looking at? Is it a particular metric on the plate, uh, the jump height, the strategy of the movement? Like, what is it? Um, more the jump height and, and kind of those, those power numbers that I was talking about. Um, for the, cause like for the most part, like those pylon, like those numbers are like fairly, fairly significantly lower than, than kind of like the more funnel people. Uh, and I'd be like, well, either that's like the most athletic pylon I've seen, or I was just wrong. You just had it wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's hysterical. Yeah. I, I can't help but think that it would be, would not be a bad thing to set up some sort of little, and I might do this on my own now. Some of my athletes like set up some sort of little checklist of things like what shape is he? What's the jump height? What are some of the underlying metrics? Which way does his pelvis like to go in a squat? 
um, mm-hmm. you know, those kind of things and just get that all set up. And then kind of like all of a sudden now we can start collecting and seeing where these archetypes fall in various things. And I feel like it's not like, maybe, maybe it's just my lack of understanding. I feel like it's not like super well-defined yet. And not that we need to have everything yeah. in its tidy little box, but the more things we can associate with each archetype, the more we can kind of know what the training strategy is going to be. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. Like the more we can, it's like, if you're not assessing, you're guessing that whole thing. Yeah. So it's like the more precise we can be with our training interventions and there's a little bit less guesswork for us. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then it could, it could honestly just be me too. Like just not knowing enough yet, but the more I see like of these shapes, I would love to know like where they're all going to kind of fall or where they're likely to fall in a lot of areas. So that way, then again, it's like you can decide where you want to go from there with the training interventions. I think that's great. Yeah. All right, Alex, this has been great. We didn't even talk about like anything fun. I apologize, but, uh, but, uh, as a Boston sports fan, you might as well answer me this, which of the 5,000 championships that you guys have won in the city of Boston since I've been alive is, was the most special. (laughs) (laughs) Most special. That's a tough one. And it's between two. It's either the 2014 Super Bowl. Which one was that? Okay. All right. That was a sick game, actually. (laughs) Just because, yeah, just because, like, that was the most, like, authentic, like, reaction I've ever had to, like, a single play. Malcolm Butler picking off Russell Wilson, like, on the goal line. Yeah. I was like, that was absolutely incredible. It was either that one or – the 2016 Super Bowl, the 28 to three comeback against the Falcons. Okay, okay, okay. Are you like a Bruins, Bruins, Red Sox fan too, or? Yeah, uh, huge, huge Bruins fan. Uh, my uncles had like season tickets to the Bruins for like years and years, so I've been to lots of those games. Um, not as big a baseball fan, but like okay. Sox. Right? I thought for sure you'd say like the 04. Is the 04 Sox right? The that was the oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I feel like everybody in Boston has to like. Even I was like, "Oh, this is amazing," you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might have been because I was just I was just younger at that point. Like I was probably ten. Oh so, shit! Okay, yeah. I was a little older. I was like, how old? I think I was like fifteen or sixteen. Yeah, so I didn't get to appreciate it as much, but yeah, that 014, That was a special team too. Um, yeah. So the 11, 11 Bruins doesn't make it over the two Pats teams though. No, no. And actually, I was at uh, game three of the uh, 2011 no Stanley shit. Cup. Did the Bruins win that one? That's, yeah, that's the one where um, Horton got knocked out on the ice. Yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that. I've never heard Boston or TD Garden so quiet in my life. Oh, gosh. That must have been eerie. You could hear a pin drop. And immediately after, like, he went off and they started playing again, like – there was like a fire, like no other. Like, I think we ended up winning like seven to one. Oh, jeez, <laughs> that, was, that was awesome. That was like, probably sick. not like that. That happened. Like that was awful, obviously. Like, yeah, yeah. But this is uh, just what happened afterwards. Yeah. The reaction. Like, yeah, let's do this for Horty. Oh, that's so sick. Yeah. I, uh, oh, I only have two. So I got the last year's nationals and then the 2018 caps. And, uh, I was actually at the Stanley Cup winning game for the Caps in Vegas. I went to the game in yeah. Vegas. 
And I, I'm not gonna lie, dude. I legit wept for like 20 minutes after the horn sounded. Like I was literally in a puddle of tears. Like I was like, "Wow, I'm pathetic." Like people are looking at me like, "Are you okay?" I'm like, "Yes, I'm fine." <laughs> That's awesome. uh, it was good times, good times. But dude, um, yeah, I know, oh, dude. I I can't wait till we get things back to like a little bit more normalcy too. Like the 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 NFL actually feels pretty normal, but everything else just feels a little like everything else just felt a little weird this year, you know. So. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> but, uh, but anyways, man, where can the people find you at to kind of like just kind of clue, clue themselves into like what you're doing, the work you're doing? And um, yeah, yeah, where, where can the people find you at? Yeah, um, my Instagram is coach underscore Pacetti. That's P-A-C-I-T-T-I. Um, they can find me there. Been trying to be a little bit better about uh, posting more content. So hopefully more to come. Um, Feel free to DM me with any questions if you want to connect at all. Um, and if you want to email me too, my email is just apacetti9, uh, the number, at gmail.com. Beautiful. Alex, thanks a lot, man. This is a blast. Um, we'll have to do it again. And uh, I always appreciate your insight. I've learned a ton talking to you, man. So I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs>